welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our wonderful radio syndicates across Canada, or potentially listening in space on the podcast, because we presume that everyone who is listening to this podcast lives in space. Um, if you don't live in space, email me and let me know, because that's always fun to have. We are here with a special episode that we have been teasing for now, I think, three months. Is that about right? <laughs> we are joined by uh, Mara Poisson from Our Time. Is this correct? That's me. You were actually on the show before I was, as a fun fact. Oh, yeah? Which also speaks to how long you've been in this kind of work. Um, So so what did we talk about to you in 2009? It was 2010. We were in Cancun, Mexico, at the UN climate negotiations. So these were the first negotiations after Copenhagen, which was kind of like... We talk about the Paris Agreement now, but before the Paris Agreement, there was the Copenhagen Agreement, where everyone came together and they were like, this is it. This is the moment. And it collapsed. Uh, Was it the moment? (laughs) It was not the moment. Uh, So the year after that, being at the UN was a bit weird because everyone kind of couldn't, like, didn't really believe anything was possible. Mm. So yes, Saren interviewed me and Liam while we were in a staircase, I think after the closing plenary, and we were like, I don't know about this. Not so great. I don't know if global cooperation on climate is going to be a thing. (laughs) Uh, to give uh, people slightly larger backstory here, this is going to be an hour-long interview talking about how you see where we're at now, uh, and then really getting into the work that our time does, uh, and ending with the the power of youth. And my last question is, as a spoiler, we're all depressed. Please help us. So we're going to get there. <laughs> That's where we're headed. But let's start real big. Obviously, you've at least been doing this since 2010, but probably before that. And so I'm curious to see, you know how do you see the world today? Where where are we at? How do we get here? Please help us. <laughs> <laughs> small question. Yeah, exactly. Starting very small. <laughs> well, how do I see the world today? Yeah. I think for most people who are thinking about climate, the main moment that we're in is that last fall, scientists gave us 12 years to turn things around, right? We have to cut our emissions in half in the next 12 years. Um, and when I think about how long I've been involved in climate activism, I feel like there wasn't an urgency there. I mean, there was, for those of us who were plugged in, um, there wasn't the same kind of urgency a decade ago when I started to do this. But decades before you and I were born, people knew that this was a problem, right? Governments knew, fossil fuel companies were doing research into it and then funding misinformation campaigns to try to make sure no one found out. There have been decades and decades of things that companies and politicians have done to make sure that we don't know that this is a crisis. People across the country are feeling the impacts of climate change. So there are wildfires in the West. There's flooding in the East. In Toronto, we see flooding all the time. It is very hot in this room right now. It's very (laughs) hot in many places. And people are starting to panic. Like, I think everyone is starting to feel the impact of the crisis. We all have something to lose. We're all affected. And it's not not an accident that we got here. Hmm. Like I said, there, there were decades and decades of companies hiding this and their political allies helping them out. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel like are. I feel like it's like don't listen to us. Listen to 1980s Exxon. They were pretty understanding of, of what we, was going on. Um, I, I think there was just an article. Uh, I think I just saw recently about Pierre Trudeau really early on, basically being like, "We made some things better, but also climate change." And you're like, "This was Pierre Trudeau." Yeah. You know, like this is not new science, really. New. But yeah, so you sort of touching on the sort of thing of like, we're at a point where there's smoke season now is a season apparently. We mm-hmm. know forget summer, we just have the season where every thing is too smoky that you can't go outside. Yeah, we have uh, a fifth season. Yeah, and we've been 
trying things for quite some time. There have been people who have been pushing, and you can watch sort of these waves of different environmental movements crash against the shores of this seemingly unmovable object. Can you walk us through sort of your personal journey to end up where we stand now and how you see change now? Like in 2009 or before, I think there was a lot of like, we just need a really, really big protest. Um, and then that that will do something. How, how, how has your thinking evolved, I guess? In terms of how change happens? Yes. Yeah. So my, my personal journey in all this um, started in 2009. I went to PowerShift in the U.S., which at the time was a convergence of 12,000 young people coming together to figure out what to do, build skills around climate. Mm. Um, and I stumbled into it quite accidentally. I was paying my way through university in Montreal, and I had to constantly be applying to scholarships um, and bursaries. Uh, and when I was filling out one particular scholarship application, there was a question that asked me what motivated me to lead. Mm. And at the time... I think we don't need to get get into this, but like I think what I realized at the time was that I had spent many years running from a bunch of terrible stuff that was happening at home, uh, and and throwing myself into activities. Right, so I looked pretty good on paper, hmm. um, but while filling this out, I realized I had absolutely no idea what I actually cared about or what motivated me. So, 2009, little Lamares in Montreal in Cafe Depot with like fluorescent lights <laughs> at 3 a.m. trying to figure out why I do anything. <laughs> And then I thought to myself, okay, I guess I'll just try some stuff and see what I really care about. First time in my life I have like freedom to, to think about that. Anyway, uh, so I ended up, one of the things that I did was going to PowerShift in the mm. U.S. And I remember being in this giant conference center with 12,000 other young people um, and learning about climate change for the first time and kind of thinking to myself, if this is the thing... Why isn't everyone panicking and figuring out how to do something? Okay, I guess I guess I should try something. Right. And that summer, there were about 100 people from Canada who were there. Mm. And that summer, somebody started an email thread that said, we should have our own power shift in Canada. And uh, I was working three jobs at the time and very unhappy. And I, <laughs> I said, I'll volunteer. And I was the first volunteer, so I became the volunteer coordinator. I'm all this to say, I just kind of stumbled into it accidentally, mm -hmm. right? Like one thing led to another. I stepped up to to help organize the first power shift we had in Canada. And then that led to going to a UN climate negotiation, which led to coordinating uh, a delegation to one and organizing the next power shift and that kind of thing. So over time, we would try things in, in Cancun in 2010. We all came prepared with our facts. I remember having this very strange meeting with John Baird in a bathroom. <laughs> um, they, they had turned all of the rooms into, into meeting rooms. So when he met with the Canadian youth delegation, it was inside a bathroom. There was a wooden plank on top of the bathtub and a sheet hung over the toilet. Um, Pamela Wallen was there. <laughs> It was all very strange, and he he asked he let us ask only five questions, um, and refused to answer any of them. And at one point, told us the definition of insanity was trying the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And at the time, I was twenty, right? Um, and I was I was so prepared, and I was so convinced that surely, if I sat down face to face with our environment minister and I explained to him what was happening, he would look at us, the people who were going to have to live with the impacts of his decisions and feel something, or at least engage authentically, and apologize for not doing something for some reason that we didn't understand. But that was not the experience I had in that meeting. So I left Mexico thinking, okay, 
the Harper government is not going to do anything. Right. And my trajectory coming out of that was taking more escalated and creative action. So when I coordinated the delegation in Durban the following year, we went in determined to just make it very clear that no one agreed with what our government was doing. So mm. we pulled all sorts of creative stunts. We launched a line of negotiator uniforms covered in oil company logos. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. That made the news. It did. <laughs> we held a bake sale to buy back our future from the fossil fuel industry. Um, it was cathartic. Right, right. And people really appreciated it. Um, people from small island states, like from the front lines, where they would be most affected and were least responsible for the crisis that we created, it felt great. Right. And we came home and nothing was different. Right. And so in 2015, uh, around the federal election, it was very clear that we had to get rid of the conservatives as the first obstacle. So the way I spent my time for a few years around that was building this massive strategic voting campaign um, along with this incredible team at Lead Now and um, thousands of volunteers across the country where we united the non-conservative vote against um, behind candidates who could help defeat conservatives. And again... It felt, it felt so much more strategic right. um, because it was clear we had to build power inside the political system. And we elected, we helped elect a new government that said a lot of great things. And over the last few years, we've seen um, our liberal government go back on <laughs> electoral reform. They've bought a pipeline. <laughs> They've broken a bunch of promises on indigenous rights. Um, and so I felt very hopeful the day after the 2015 election. Right. I mean, he took the subway to work. He did. He did, and he shook hands. Yeah. I, I remember them ha having to do a media interview the morning after the election. And to be totally honest, we were expecting a minority government, and we had a plan for a minority government. We were right. going to push people to cooperate on the things that you know, our base cared about. And what was great was that all of the parties, other than the conservatives, had promised electoral reform, and that would have created a situation where it would have been much easier to get stuff done. Yeah. But anyway, you know, yeah. we all know how this played out. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> well, the one other the yeah. the one other thing that happened was last year in the absence of this leadership. Like it was it was clear to me by this point that we needed political leadership and power within the political system in addition to strong and thriving social movements. And our political leaders weren't doing that. Party discipline is such a massive problem. And so the opportunity to run for office fell into my lap and I thought, okay, why not? I'll try this. And what became clear to me through running in the provincial and municipal elections uh, was that people responded really well to authentic, honest <laughs> candidates uh, who were really clear on values and committed to, committed to change. Uh, so where we are now is that and with our time, this yeah. is what we're doing, we're building a massive movement of young people who are pushing for a Green New Deal, and we're backing candidates who are also committed to a Green New Deal, but are willing to do politics differently and stand up to their parties um, and really drive this agenda forward. So it's not just about defeating the bad guys and stopping damage. It's about actually calling for a bold vision and having political leadership that's committed to getting stuff done. Amazing. So we're going to go to our first music break right now. Uh, but I'm not going to say what it is because it's uh, it's a kind of a special, a special music break. And then we'll come back and explain that and then move into, into really what our time is all about.
Welcome back to CIUT 89.5 FM, uh, for one of our wonderful radio syndicates, or perhaps on our podcast. Um, and you have just listened to what was about a couple hundred people, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and and where, where were these people and what were they doing? So that was a few weeks ago in Edmonton. Uh, in May, there were 150 town halls that were organized across the country. People coming together to figure out what a Green New Deal was, um, could mean for their communities. And the very first one that happened was in Edmonton. It was organized by Climate Justice Edmonton, which is anchoring the Our Time campaign there. Mm. Uh, And what you heard was their rendition of Which Side Are You On, which they rewrote Mm -hmm. uh, to talk about climate change. Yeah. I actually Uh, listened to it on my way to this interview to prep. It's, it's like it's, my new pump up song. There are a few chants that that I that were that still like come back to me. You know, we're gonna rise like the water uh, is one that I, always, I that still sticks with me. Um, my favorite chant of all time still remains the divestment chant of "What do we want? Fossil divestment? When do you want it? Gradually over five years." <laughs> that remains my favorite of all time chants. Um, the time for that is over. Yes, exactly. Yeah, now, yeah. Now it's now it's immediate. Yeah, we've that was five years ago. The chant was five years old. Um, uh, what is our time? You know, what, what are what are you what are you doing? What are we doing? So our time is a youth-led project that's supported by 350, where we're building a historic alliance for a Green New Deal. Um, So a Green New Deal would mobilize our economy um, in a massive way and transform our economy to help us meet the intersecting crises uh, of climate and inequality, rising racism. Um, So over the next few months, our current focus is uh, making sure that there's a climate debate during the election. It's it's a national emergency. It's a huge crisis. Uh, As our public broadcaster, the CBC has a responsibility to make sure that every single person in the country knows who actually has a plan and is informed when voting during the election. So that's what we're focusing on now. On July 17th, there's a massive day of action where thousands of people across the country are going to rally around um, CBC headquarters. The one in Toronto is going to be huge. So at r-time.ca. If you click on Change the Debate at the top, you can find an action near you. Nice. Uh, and if there isn't one, you can host it. It's great. Um, Everyone, you know, s- small actions are also fun. In the, often you see in the Fridays for Future stuff, there's like, you know, the, the three people in the small town. You're like, that yes. also matters, right? These it's things, totally- Toronto gets blamed for being the center of attention. But like, you know, we want, other, you know, like, let's get a Bradford. Let's, get, let's do this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you'd be surprised when you, when you start saying something in your community, you'd be surprised how many people come out of the woodwork mm. because they agree and they didn't know that someone agreed with them. Right. So... After we get the debate, we're building a massive voting alliance and we're backing Green New Deal champions across the country so that no matter what happens on Election Day, we come out in a strong position with allies in government who are ready to fight for this and who we're going to push and support and hold accountable. Yeah, and, and I think this, this, is, this shift is, um, is, is notable in, in, a, in a particular way that I, I don't know if we've really seen for quite some time. So there's been a conversation that I've had with, with activists and people for, for the last couple of years, uh, which came out of, I, I was at, I don't know, you know, X protests two or three years ago. And it was like the fourth of the year. And I was in a park and there was a whole bunch of, you know, speakers coming up going one by one about all the different ways that we're, that we are messing up. And by the end of it, I was just thinking to myself, what would happen if the government just turned around on that day and like went to the people and were like, okay, like, what do we do? You know, like, like what, what would happen? Like, like it struck me that we had spent so long talking about so many things that we didn't want. We hadn't done sort of the world building exercise of what we do want. The Green New Deal is a conversation about really what is the world we want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what is the world you want? 
what is the world I want? Yeah, like what's like what's the question. what excites you about the Green New Deal? You know, what is I mean, what is what what's the world you want? I want a Green New Deal. Have you seen Have you seen the video that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and the Intercept did? He yes, just, he just kind of rolled my eyes and nodded at me, like obviously, just <laughs> for the listeners. <laughs> okay, so what I love about that is that it does such a good job of um, showing us what's possible. Right. So much of why we're in this political moment has to do with the like the history of the country, right? Mm. A lot of us forget, some of us never even learned, that before Canada was a country, it was um, a company, right? Canada was created to extract resources and make the British Empire rich. So there's just this story in our national psyche about how that's all we could ever be, and it really limits our political imagination. So what I love about the Green New Deal and the conversations that are happening around it is that it's busting open what's politically possible. There have been times in Canadian history where we have created 20-something crown corporations to mobilize for war. But right. instead of mobilizing for war, let's mobilize around this new economy that we need to build. Like, what if we had indigenous-led crown corporations that had a mandate to end boil water advisories and also solarize every single community? And then at the same time, when like plants were being closed in Oshawa, um, we were nationalizing them and then opening them up and building buses and, and trains and making transit it free and building high-speed rail like all of this is possible and in Canada where we are such a big part of the problem we really have a choice when it comes to the solution like we can we can continue to be part of the problem and double down on fossil fuel infrastructure or we can come together around this beautiful vision for what the world could be which is only going to be possible through like everyone stepping up and taking action and a massive investment from government and and but we have to be able to go there in our minds together first if we're actually going to to go there. Yeah, yeah. And a couple a couple episodes ago, uh, there was an interview my brother uh, that Dave did with with Stephen Sharper, and there was a line that he pulled from it that he that we sort of talked about a little bit. Uh, Stephen Sharper is a professor here at the University of Toronto, and and he was at a class and he was telling a story. He was at a class, uh, he was teaching, and he had asked the question, "Who here can imagine the end of the world?" And like everyone put up their hand, and then he so he follows up and he's like, "Okay, who here can imagine the end of capitalism?" And then like in crickets. And he's like, so that's interesting. You know, where is our imagination? Like, you know, why why are some of these worlds so easy to imagine? And why are some of these worlds have we spent so much time imagining? Yeah. Uh, and, and where is the fertile ground? Uh, and, and, you know, and where is there not? And it, it was such an interesting highlight to the fact that we we as a society are really good at imagining the end of the world. You know, look at any, you know, how many how much sci-fi is dystopian. And even the utopian societies usually are secretly dystopian. Mm-hmm. Like there's not a lot of it's not a lot of, of real world building on a, on a sustainable future. And and I think this this concept yeah. of 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 a, of of a green new deal is as a bit of that sort of you know there's always this question of like how will we pay for it and it's like well like how do we pay for what we're doing now yeah you know yeah that's not the question yeah yeah exactly yeah. yeah like there's like how do we do it it will be hard like this is a thing too right you know like there's a level of this this difficulty that it, yeah, like we're not pretending that this is this that this whole transition will be easy but it will be worthwhile it will give you a sense of you know reality I mm-hmm. think. The other thing that our time really focuses on is the fact that this is that it's really youth led, right? Mm-hmm. That these are that these are this is this is young people leading this movement. Why is it so important that youth are leading this movement? One reason is that we're a generational front line, right? Mm. So all of us have something to lose. All of us have something to fight for. The other reason is that 
in this federal election, young people and millennials are actually the largest voting bloc. Mm. Uh, so there's also a strategic reason for it. Um, we could quite literally hold the power to make a Green New Deal a reality if we show up um, and back people who are willing to have our backs. Right. So to, to expand that a little bit, um, there are maybe three or four sort of major movements in climate going on right now. Um, what strikes me as unique about this about this time in our lives is that there is more than one. Mm-hmm. You know, like for so long, there was the climate organization that everyone knew and it would just change. Right. Like it was like, you know, it's you know, it's one and then it was the next one and the next one. But it was always one. And uh, and what, I, what excites me so much about the time right now is that there are these full on separate movements. Yep. You know, you know, you see you see the sunrise movement in the states really pushing for a green new deal in the states. You know, you see Fridays for Future really, you know, really just sort of bringing it bringing it home in a way that that is that is really quite important. I think the frontline indigenous solidarity movement uh, of of really stopping the the infrastructure at you know at its root. It's not one thing. These are. This is actually. This is a. This is a. It's a groundswell. I think this is a truly it's an different actual moment. movement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, and, it, and it, it's it, it's exciting. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. As someone who's been here for ten years, does it feel different? Yes, it totally feels different. I mean, I was. I guess what I should have said <laughs> is I feel very hopeful right now. Like the reason that I feel hopeful is that so much is happening. And like, look at what young people are doing around the world, right? Like everything that you just mentioned. Um, there's there's a groundswell. Mm. Like a, a few weeks ago, uh, a massive protest shut down London and forced the government to pass climate emergency legislation. Yeah, yeah. Right? We like, we actually we interviewed uh, one of the someone someone ridiculously who used to live in Toronto and then went over and you know Stu Basden um, about about right before that happened. And yeah, they spent to like a week. They mm-hmm. shut down London for like a week. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 the, the Exa Rebellion has has moved on. You know, in it, there's now a division in Toronto, in in Guelph, in in and like in popping up everywhere. Yeah, uh, and yet 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 another one. You know, and again, you know, they are not the same as you know as 350 or a Sunrise or as 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 you know as 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 water de- water defenders. You know, these are these are so many different uh, advancing the the same sort of underlying question. Yeah. Really, they're all pointing the same direction. Yeah, I guess. Oh, it's, a, it's an interesting time to be alive. Is that like, I feel like that's like a little, little, little open, but like. I mean, it is. I think that that's how change happens, right? right? There have been a few times in history when organizations, movements um, have aligned behind a broad political agenda. And I think that this is one of those moments. Mm. Um, even even just like what you described as happening, uh, that's, that's being led by young people, right? Um, that's huge. Uh, but then you have po- like, politicians coming out and saying things you have corporations who are doing things you, like there's there's so much happening and we're definitely at a turning point hmm. so this is going to get a little uh actually no, I'll, I'll ask that question in the, in the third break so i have one more question about youth and then we'll go to second break um then i'll ask the much wider sort of more like world building question and at the end Thanks for um, yeah yes it's coming <laughs> um uh but uh but let's go back to youth uh and 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 a thing that's we constantly you know a couple of weeks ago we had uh you know apathy is boring on with some of the with some youth and their whole focus is get helping youth get involved uh and something during that conversation that that we brought up and talked about a bit was the fact that youth are constantly told to get involved but then it given no way to do so <laughs> like how often growing up you're like you should get involved and you're like what does that mean um uh uh, and and so so like if you uh, you know as someone who successfully got involved, uh, how what were the what would steps would you suggest you know if you, as a youth listening to this how would you suggest they they get involved? 
Well, I mean, first of all, if you are a young person listening to this, go to r-time.ca, <laughs> sign up. <laughs> um, if there if there's a local hub in your city, you can sign up. Um, and shortly after you sign up, somebody will follow up with you and get you involved. Mm. It's not just about um, like you need someone to actually reach out and right. show you the path to do the thing. Um, and so that's what's really exciting to me. Like here in here in Toronto, Climate Justice Toronto is anchoring the campaign, and mm. they have like hundreds of volunteers. They're constantly out doing things. If you sign up to the hub, you'll get invited to go canvas with them or to go to a potluck. It's like it's it's a fun experience. Mm -hmm. People aren't going to get involved if it's not fun. Yeah. Lesson number one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, join the campaign. Obviously, right. I would say that. Uh, and then I I don't think that it's actually much more complicated than giving people meaningful paths to do something that it's it's about relationships and it's about meaningful action. So if I look back at my path, I happened to find myself in a situation, someone gave me an opportunity to help organize PowerShift. I did that. Through that process, I made a bunch of friends who cared about the same things, and we kept doing things together. Mm. And so I, for me personally, I think it's really, really important to make as many of those opportunities available as possible and to make them as supportive as possible. I think there's a whole bunch of stuff that I had to go through um, and I learned a lot and I don't know that it had to be that hard. Right, right. <laughs> so um, what we're really committed to on the Our Time campaign is making sure that there's uh, meaningful opportunities for people to engage and that it's fun and supportive um, and that we are actually doing something to tackle this crisis. Yeah, yeah. Ma feeling, I feel like friendship is is underrated uh, in activist circles, I think, um, uh, especially for keeping you going, right? You know, just the ability to do it again and again yeah. and and fun. Like like what I loved about uh, what how the Extinction Rebellion shut down London was they shut it down with a circus. You know, like like uh, I think the, like Piccadilly Square. I think they had literally a circus ongoing for mm -hmm. like for days, and so like it was this. Yes, you can't go through, but like we're going to give you a show. You know, we're going to have a good time while we do this. Yeah, and I think that sort of that that sort of switch is is so is so fascinating. Um, so yeah, we're going to come back with uh, some large, just sort of scary questions. Uh, not scary questions, but like large, uh, more world building understanding questions uh, after the break. Uh, so throw to throw to music break. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. Welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, I am here with Amar, Amar Passan of Our Time. And we are talking about uh, both Our Time and, and the world at large. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Um, and I didn't even tell you what the question was on the music break. So we're just going to dive right <laughs> into it. Um, which is, this is something that I think about a fair amount. And and, and something that I've, I've talked to a bunch of people about. And so I'm just kind of interested. Which is, how do we actually you know, like get there, you know, say the next 10 years. And if you have to look at it, I, I, like in some ways I feel like, you know, we have to, in some ways be expecting like, you know, if we're, if we're advocating for this thing, um, there will be major pivotal points that have, that will, that will be required to really shift this. Um, and, 
And I'm curious to know sort of like, like if you had to project out, you know, the next 10 years, like, it, you know, what will, if we, you know, we, we interviewed you first 10 years ago. So, he, you know, th- theoretically, we're interviewing you again in 10 years. And, and, and it's, a, it's a less, it's a, it's a slightly more positive interview uh, from a standpoint of, of, of where we're at in the world. Um, and I'm curious to know sort of how you, how you see us get there. Like, what are, what are the, what are the main pivot points? What are the, what are we doing? Wow, I wonder if this will happen, and then we will play this clip. See that would like that would be amazing. Obviously, <laughs> like this is your chance. This is your chance to be like one of those things where like ten years ago, like she called it. She called it. <laughs> oh man. Well, one thing that I am certain of is mm. that this federal election has to be a turning point. Mm. We have eleven years. Right. If we lose four of those years, it's going to be impossible. Very hard to come back from that. So we have to make sure that whatever happens in this election, um, we come out with a movement, so many different groups calling for a Green New Deal. We come out with a movement that is committed to fighting for a Green New Deal, and we come out with people in office who are also ready to fight for a Green New Deal. Um, And to do that, I think, if I'm looking back, we did get a climate debate. Hmm. It was the debate that most, like the largest number of people tuned into. Um, maybe it was the moment that people started to pay attention to the election. <laughs> and the first thing they heard about was climate change. And they had an aha moment and decided to throw down behind candidates who were really committed to doing this. Um, we came out of the election, regardless of the outcome, there was a massive mobilization around climate. The new government knew that they had a strong mandate to do something about this and to start our transition towards a Green New Deal. And over the next decade, um, we transitioned to 100% renewable energy. The transition was led by Indigenous communities and marginalized communities, those on the front line of the crisis who um, did the least to cause it and were most affected by it. Um, There was like a massive job training program. Uh, We... Everybody who currently works in the fossil fuel industry was trained um, and guaranteed a job in a in, a, <laughs> in renewable energy, um, in uh, in transportation, um, and we really felt collectively like we had a project. We no longer thought about politics and government cynically because the people who were in there were working with us to to figure out what to do and to bring us into doing it. And everybody, we came out of the the decade of the Green New Deal with a collective sense of responsibility um, and massive government investment in the Green New Deal and the future. And we probably did lose some things, right? right? There's, there's already biodiversity loss. Yeah. There are already parts of the country that are underwater or on fire all the time. And we figured out how to grieve together mm. because that's really sad. Yeah. Um, but we came out stronger. Right. And we did something that if you talked to most people on the street right now, maybe they couldn't imagine. Right. I, I, you said something there that I find really interesting, uh, which is the word project. And I, and, and I think I, I, when I imagine real action, I, I, I can't help but but fall back a little bit on that concept of a shared project, right? That, that, that really was something that, 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 you know, most people felt like they were in some ways or had to be, you know, involved in. Um, because it, to me, there's so many, 
you know, whether it's big or small, you know, I, and because to me, there's so many like because like the, the the flip side version where we still maybe do it, but in a much you know worse way, you know, is that we this government, we, we elect uh, another government that will not do uh, will we'll, we'll sort of double down uh, in our in our fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, but then in 2020, you get uh, you get a progressive leader in the states. Uh, who actually finally galvanizes an effort, uh, an effort to 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 really shift, and then that and then that undermines the entire fossil fuel economy, sending the world into a global recession, uh, and and that has to be you know that has to be that has to be built out of it. And the way out of that would be a Green New Deal, right? Like you know, like if we're talking about how do, how do we get out of the Great Depression, a Green New Deal, how or, or a, green, a New Deal, uh, how do you get out of the how do you get out of this eventual, which which, which will happen, right? The thing about this is like. Uh, like we've already lost the ability to slowly phase ourselves off fossil fuels. Like the only the only real future is, and my my thought is that we're going to see a tanking of fossil fuel stocks when once once the world admits that it's not going to burn all the things. Um, and and then how to get out of that recession? You know, to me is is this Green New Deal? Um, and it it's it, it's scary to me the concept that Canada could be like you know, four years behind on that, right? Like, like here we are already locked into, you know, locked into, we've just now, you know, we just trampled the indigenous rights to try to build this pipeline. Uh, and, and now our major trading partner is like, actually, we don't want that. You know, like, like the fact that, the fact that, uh, that, um, that Keystone still is not built is like one of these things where it's like, how long ago did, did, did we, did, did, was that fight going on? And yet it's still not built. And the idea that like another pipeline infrastructure is, is really the answer to our problem seems, seems ridiculous to me. Um, but yeah, but, but that, this idea of this collective project and this idea of, of, of all of the ways in which we, we need to transform, uh, the economy, you know, um, all the way down to like, to me, it's, it's even like something like, you know, like gardens, like you know, like we had we had victory gardens, uh, which they called them. Uh, the whole movement to have like people growing gardens in in mm-hmm. during World War II, and like to me, that's that kind of everydayness is it will have to be a part of this a little bit. This like shared project has to be a truly shared project. Um, and so like, yeah, I, I just as, like I find that I find that sort of thought about how to get to that shared project, and I think that's why. The town halls are so interesting, mm-hmm. um, and so can you tell me about sort of how they how they went? Like mm-hmm. how how did those how do these town halls, um, you know, you brought thousands of Canadians together to talk about what this shared project could look like? And I'm curious what they said. What they said? They said so many things. Um, the thing, actually, when I think about a shared project and what it looks like mm-hmm. for us to come together around that, one of the things from the town hall that I think is um, is critical is. The process that folks went to, so anyone could organize a town hall anywhere in Canada. Um, They received a host guide with facilitation materials and uh, somebody called to make sure they had all the support that they needed to to host it. Um, And then a number of organizations helped recruit people to attend. And then at the town hall, um, the idea wasn't to come out with consensus around specific policies, right? Like we elect governments to legislate. So what we were doing in those town halls uh, was was sharing what absolutely had to be a part of the Green New Deal um, and what could not be a part of the Green New Deal. So this concept of green lines and red lines. Mm. There's um, on the Pact for a Green New Deal website, which uh, was the coalition website, um, there's a really great summary um, of, it's not entirely comprehensive, but it it's, does a pretty good job of um, 
sharing uh, what folks said. Um, and what that coalition is doing over the course of the next few months is continuing to engage people who weren't at the town halls for whatever reason, but whose voices are critical um, to shaping uh, what's in there. So I actually think what came out of the town hall, which is very focused on real reconciliation, centering indigenous communities, migrant communities, marginalized communities, um, transitioning away from fossil fuels, guaranteed good uh, good jobs, um, cr creating millions of jobs through the transition. Um, the, the broad themes came out of that, and that is a really excellent foundation for uh, what the whole suite of policies could look like after the election. And what's really exciting is that both the NDP and the Greens have come out with platforms already that have pieces of this in there. So we already have two of the major parties um, talking about talking about a Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't seen a liberal climate plan yet. The conservative climate plan was is not a thing. Widely mocked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by, um, by literally everyone, you yeah. know, including conservative <laughs> sources, basically. Yeah. yeah. So there's this grassroots process has laid a really strong foundation, I think, for what it could look like for um, people and their government to work together to shape what a Green New Deal looks like mm. um, over the course of the next few months. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that we, you know, and is what's funny is that is so how so rarely we think about government in the way we think about sort of all other organizing bodies. Right. Like, you know, it, like in the, it, it's so funny how how, you know, when you think about, say, your organizational leadership, say, in a, in a company, you know, there's a level of which that, you know, good theory was that, like, you know, if your employees, uh, you know, have feedback about things that are working, like you're, you have to get buy in from your employees that becomes a part of the whole thing. And. Um, and the failure to do so is indicative of, uh, you know, of, 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 of a, of a, of, a, of, of, of then because failure. And it feels like government, I think because maybe we've made it so specific in the voting uh, action of how, that's how you have your conversation. We've just sort of broken all other ties to, mm -hmm. to things. And it's just, it strikes me as so backwards right like here is the perhaps the most largest organizing piece and yet we are making the decision that that's not uh that's not what matters yeah um have you read dave meslin's latest book i have not yet tear down it is on my list um, it is, he does an excellent job of breaking down everything that is broken about our democracy right and it's i mean it's why we need to elect people who are champions of the green new deal and our community organizers mm. who when they're in government will actually be accountable to people and won't be swallowed up by all of the conventions of the way that things should work or have worked or the party leader and their office says like need to happen. Right. Um, because it doesn't have to be this way. It can be different. <laughs> it can be different. <laughs> it can be different. Yeah. I, when I was canvassing last summer, I would meet people all the time who'd say, all, like all the politicians are the same, they're all corrupt, nothing will ever change. Mm -hmm. And I would say to them, you know that if you think that about someone, you can vote them out, right? right? You can replace them with a different person. Mm. And that person might agree with you on policy and also actually have your back on the inside. Right. But the system is designed to not do that. Yeah. And so uh, we need enough people to get elected at the same time who have each other's backs. That's what we're seeing in the states with um, all of the incredible women of color who were elected to Congress in the last election. They are having, it's not just about one of them, hundreds of them ran, they all had each other's backs. Um, and that's what makes it possible for them to uh, 
to um, get stuff done on the inside and also actually be in dialogue with social movements on the outside. Yeah, and I think that's that's an important piece. Because I, I was talking, I, I was interesting, I was, I was talking to a MPP a couple of months ago who was just, had just left uh, politics. Um, and and they're sort of, and they were, you know, they were a MPP that I, I would, you know, I generally would would agree with them most policies, you know, tr- trying to trying to move good things forward, and and they left out of frustration uh, due to the fact that they felt like, you know, they were they were they were being dictated to about you know they, it was just three teams, right? It had it had really become this sort of this sort of okay, we're team this, you know, uh, and yeah. so and so any we can't we can't have bills that agree with the other people because it makes them look good, you know. We must be we must stand strong as as team this. Um, and, and how consistently that undermines the, you know, that, like, that's it. Like, like if you want to, like, it's, it's, it's perhaps the f- weirdest thing about the fact that you have, you know, Justin Trudeau makes himself the minister of youth, um, and then, and then wonders why, uh, you know, youth might, uh, like there's a great photo, Do you, like this is a weird aside, but you know that photo that the conservatives harped on a bunch, uh, about him having a plastic fork. Um, yes. and the photo is like him meeting, like, I believe it's like, a, it's a, it's a youth council to me. The fo- the interesting thing in that photo is not the plastic fork. It is how angry every single person <laughs> in that photo looks with Facial him. Expressions. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like six young people who look at, I've never seen anyone look more angry at a person who's like, you know, and, and yet, and yet the conservatives see a plastic fork. I see youth who are not listening, who are, who are absolutely refusing to listen to the politics as normal and in and, and speaking truth to power. And that is 100% why I feel hopeful in this moment mm. because like we've talked about, young people are mobilizing in so many different ways. Even young people who can't vote, right? So right. blowing open this idea that your only way to be engaged is to vote every four years, that's yeah. ridiculous. Um, but when these young people do come to power, like when they all run for office, mm. when like some of them run for office and the other ones are pushing them from the outside, they are going to be angry. <laughs> they're going to be organized and highly skilled because they've been organizing um, probably at a far younger age than oh, yeah. they should have been forced to. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that they're going to settle for politics as usual. Yeah. Well, how, like, like how it could, doesn't. Yeah. How can. could you? Yeah. You know, like. So it's so inspiring. Yeah. And I'm only 30. It's not like I'm like old, but right. there is definitely a difference between our generation of young climate mm. activists and the generation that has been forced because of the state of the world um, to be on the streets at like 14, 15, 16 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah, like I, 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 there was a many years ago I went to see a play um, about uh, it was a, the, the, this essentially the idea of before walking in was that was it was a couple trying to decide if they should have a kid during climate change. Um, and, and this is a conversation I've now had multiple times, yeah. like, you know, a conversation that would be and it, it's fascinating is talking to older people about the fact that I'm actually having this conversation, yeah. you know, that I'm literally having conversations with people asking themselves whether or not it is moral to bring a child into this into this world. With many people and many times a week, it's not just like a one off conversation. Yeah. I think I've had that conversation like four or five times this week with different people. Well, yeah, because we're, we're entering the age where people ha- would normally have kids and, yeah. you know, in, in our our life tick boxes say okay right around now is when you have kids because that's when our parents had kids um and that and yet yet imagining that you know like you said the top of the, sh- of the show it's 11 years that means the kid you have now is going to be in grade six and yes. like 
how do you explain? And and like this is the thing. So the way this play ends, spoiler alert, it's three years ago and you'll never see it. Um, is that they end up having this kid, and then this kid hates them, um, and uh, and and is you know and is basically starting protesting at fourteen because they are born into a world where they're literally taught in school that they're that they're doomed. Right. Like they get to 14 and they're like, well, you know, all the things we could have done the last 50 years, we didn't. And and, it, it's, and we knew yeah. the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like it, it's like, yeah, exactly. It's not even just it's not just, you know, we exist, you know, like, oh, it snuck up on us. No, like yeah. we knew and and we talked about it incessantly. You know, like I, I was thinking of, uh, uh, I was watching a, an older climate scientist uh, who had who has now passed away, but he was on the, a lot of IPCC reports. He's one of the earlier, earlier, earlier reporters. And I just thought how interesting and different it would be to be someone who like for us, we learned about climate change around like a little bit. Maybe we maybe just mentioned briefly in school, but like you know, we hit around. I was around your age too, around twenty or no, eighteen, nineteen, when when someone really sort of laid down the facts, um, and and that and, and and then also laid down the facts that you know we sort of had no, but like we were probably a part of like the early onset of learning, but like it was known before us. It would be. To, to imagine to be the person who's you know say sixty and seventy now who who it wasn't a thing before mm-hmm. and then became a thing to me is a whole other uh, ball game yeah um and and yeah like the, the young people is is just is is a whole thing so I I promised I'd end on this question so I'm ending on this well I I, I the last question will be an opportunity for you to once again tell people how to get involved in our time but the question before the last question uh, is. You know, we've managed to be a little bit hopeful on this on this thing, but I think I would I would not be unfair uh, to be a little depressed. Uh, and um, and I think I think uh, not to speak for you, but I think we both go through stages of honestly, we're going to do this to uh, maybe we're screwed. Uh, you know, three times a day, um, and so uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there who probably um, you know are feel feeling a little little a little depressed and a little understand. And I'm wondering like. What you'd say to those people who are feel disempowered and hopeless, like you get you get to, you get to, you do a little stump speech, you get to pop up in their ears because they're you know on the subway uh, or they're in space listening to the show, and and you get to give them like a one minute like this is why uh, this is uh, this is a way at least to feel a little a little maybe not hopeful but a little more empowered actually like I think hopefulness and empowered are different things so let's go empowered. <laughs> I mean, first of all, it is totally legit that you feel hopeless and disempowered. Right. <laughs> like, it makes complete sense. Um, the world is burning. Uh, the people who we have elected um, are not doing anything about it. Uh, and it is not, there isn't an obvious path forward that is, there isn't an obvious path forward, and the path forward is not particularly easy. Hmm. So it totally makes sense. Uh, and a lot of people feel that way. Right. I've been organizing on climate for 10 years, and there are some days where I don't want to get out of bed because I'm not sure what we can do. So this it's like totally normal to feel that way. And what is the th- the thing that sometimes breaks me out of that is when I look at who has power to make decisions that could lead this transformation and realize how totally arbitrary it is <laughs> um, and how those those of them who did get elected totally got elected because of a broken voting system and so it does like they don't need to be the ones in there right like we can just do it 
<laughs> we, <laughs> we, we do have the power and everything. We've grown up in a world that has taught us that we don't. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be that way. So, so in some ways, I, th- it, uh, I think you're saying that it is our time. Uh, it is our time. Their time <laughs> is over. Right. The, the fossil fuel billionaires um, and their political allies, uh, their time is up. Right. Um, uh, so thank you so much, Amara, <laughs> for being on the show. Uh, let us let, Before we head to, to, the music, to the end, uh, how can folks get involved? Uh, one last chance to, like, how they can find out. Check out r-time.ca. You can put in your info no matter where you live. We will hook you up with the best way uh, to be a part of this movement. Amazing. Uh, Thanks so much, Amara. Uh, Thanks so much, everyone. Uh, We'll see you all uh, next week, and have uh, a great week, everyone. (laughs) 